0: We're doing a series that I call the one and of scripture. You'll find that in the Bible there are about 120 statements that use the words one another to teach us how, as God's people, we are to live together and love together and serve together. And there are multiple times when he uses the word, when the Spirit of God who wrote the Bible uses the word love one another. And, for example, we took a look at this last week where we're told to bear with each other And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to develop the muscle of forgiveness. Being ready and able to forgive one another when circumstances demand it. And one of the passages that focuses on the forgiveness process is Matthew chapter 18. And let me set the scene for you. There was an occasion when parents were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples blocked them and said, no, 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 don't bother him with your children. And Jesus rebuked the disciples and said, let them bring the children to me for such is the kingdom of God. And then he told them a story. He said, imagine a man who's got a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. Doesn't he quarantine the 99 and go in search of the one? And obviously the answer is yes. Yes. Sheep were extremely uh, precious to them. And so he would go in search of the one. And at that point then Jesus segues and he teaches us a series of four steps we're to take when we find ourselves in conflict with another member of the church. And it's found in Matthew chapter 18. But I want you to notice today and next week as we study this, the ultimate goal of anything that happens in the life of the church that involves conflict is restoration. Every single time you encounter the, the, the instructions in the Bible, how to deal with conflict between us, you encounter passages that the ultimate goal is to restore the person to relationship with you or to restore the person's relationship with the church. We're to restore one another. And so in this passage, Jesus is going to teach us that there are, the church has a responsibility whenever there is conflict that happens within a church to restore people to relationships with one another and with the church. And by the way, the reason I used the airline thing in case you missed it is we don't have a problem right now, okay? This is before we take off. This is just advance uh, warning that Jesus was giving to the whole church, and it's an important thing for us to understand. In this passage, after he gives us these four steps we're to take, Jesus makes sure that the apostles and that we understand that we as a church have been delegated the responsibility and the authority to act on his behalf, okay? He'll say to them, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. To bind and loose means to permit or to forbid, and he's saying to the apostles and then through them to the churches in the future that those in leadership have responsibility and authority to permit and forbid things, all kinds of things. He says, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, this is kind of like, cool. Oh, my gosh. All right. So all I need is one of you to agree with me that I need a Porsche, and pow, God will give it. Okay? So obviously, that's not sort of a blanket promise. We know that because as he completes the statement, he says, For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. In my name means whenever two or three believers gather together to do the work of Jesus Christ, to submit themselves to Jesus Christ, to do what he has called us to do and to operate on his behalf. That's the shortest definition of what a church is. Where two or three people come together with the intent of doing the work of God. Now, that doesn't mean just two or three people sitting around having coffee, and we go, you know what, let's do this, okay? No. It's got to be a formal state, a commitment. That's why you find many churches started with two or three people who came together and said, let's work together to start a church. And then they begin to work formally. And so this, this setting is not just casually people, two or three people agreeing on something, It's when two or three people are doing the work of God who come together in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, then I am with them and in the midst of them. And then he gives his instructions on how to restore broken relationships. And his instructions are twofold. One, to protect the individual, to bring the person back into relationship and restore them. But it's also to protect the church from internal hemorrhaging because he knew that there would be time when conflict would show up in the life of a church and that conflict could do tremendous damage to a church. And many of us can give personal testimony to how when conflict was not handled correctly in the life of two or three believers, you can have a church that is severely damaged because it's not handled correctly. So we're going to walk through these these steps together and just spend some time absorbing how Jesus said we're to do this. And the first step is that when someone has sinned against you, done something morally wrong against you, you go to that person one-on-one, just straight to them. One of the dangers, one of the problems, is that often somebody's done something wrong to you, and you go to others and tell them. But in order to protect them, Jesus said, no. If someone has sinned against you, you go to them one-on-one. If your brother, and by the way, the word brother is the word sibling, okay? It's brother or sister. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Now, notice the word sin. A sin is a moral break between you. If somebody does something that is forbidden by God for us, for example, if, let's, let's just use the one that is, that, is, that is quite common. If somebody sexually assaults you, that's called sin okay, that is wrong for somebody who sexually assaults you, physically assaults you. If somebody physically assaults you, that's called sin. If somebody who is your partner in business cheats you, who is a Christian, that's called sin. Are you guys with me? Matthew 18 does not apply if you don't like Raymond. If you don't like Raymond, get in line, okay? And the reason why this is important is often Matthew 18 is pulled out of its context. And somebody's just annoyed at somebody else. You took my parking space. You sat in my seat. Whatever. Some of you are already struggling with that. It does not apply. You cannot trivialize this this, this passage. Okay? It does not apply when there's just some kind of annoying thing that somebody else does. This is not applicable in that setting. The only setting is when someone has crossed a moral line and has done something immoral, something forbidden by God's word, something that is an attack on you. Now, before it it, it disappears from my brain, if somebody has done something that is also declared to be illegal, you've got to do both this and report them to the police. Okay? And they run parallel. So, for example, if somebody sexually assaults you, You've, you go to them, you go to the police first and report them, and then you attempt to do this so that you run the two of them together. Uh, a church near me in, in South Africa, a man hated the fact that his wife went to church. He hated the church. And one day he got drunk, and he came around the church with a pole, and he smashed all of their windows around the entire church. So they had him arrested. And you go, that's not Christian. Yes, it's very Christian. He broke your windows, okay? They had him put in prison, then then jail. Then they took care of his wife and baby while he was in jail, made sure that they paid their their, uh, mortgage for them, they gave them food and stuff like that, and they visited him in jail to try to witness to him, to bring him to this point. So do you see the point? If somebody's done something to you that is illegal, they must be reported. And at the same time, you try to do this. Now... Is this easy to do, to go one-on-one? No. <laughs> not at all. It's an extremely difficult thing to do. And doing it one-on-one is critical. Because before you bring anybody else into the picture, and let's assume it's not an illegal thing, before you bring somebody else into the picture, you have to have the courage to think it through. Did this person really do something that must be confronted so that our relationship can be restored? It takes an enormous amount of courage to do this. And notice this. If your brother sins against you, next week we'll deal with a case where people in the church see something going wrong. And there is a time when we are our brother's keeper. Okay? But in this case, this is one-on-one. It's not you take up somebody else's uh, uh, case. If somebody has done something immoral to you, something that is a sin... Your first step must be to try and confront them, to do your best to confront them. Okay, with me there? Jesus actually expanded this in order for us to understand what is your objective? Your objective is not to punish them. Your objective is not to to get even. Your objective is to restore them. In Luke, he says a similar thing. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Okay, rebuke them. Let them know what you did is wrong, and then if they repent, forgive them. The if is a vital part to them. Why does God require this of us? Paul explains it this way: In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the anger, the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. The reason for these instructions in Scripture is to protect us personally. And many people live their lives with all kinds of bitterness deep down inside of them a bitterness that governs their lives because they haven't tried to bring a broken relationship to a place of restoration. And Satan uses that as an access to our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan can never possess you. But Satan can oppress you. There's a big difference. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God possesses you. You're owned by Him, and nothing can change that. But if there is something in your life that has not been dealt with, the the devil can oppress you, he can attack you, and he will use it. And if there's bitterness inside of you and me, if there's some kind of unresolved anger, he will access that and he will do everything he can to make us turn more and more bitter deep down inside of our souls. And when he's done that, he's gained control of you and he's stopped you from growing in your relationship with God. And so that's a first vital step there is that if someone has done something morally wrong if someone has sinned against you your first step is to go to that person one on one to rebuke them for what they did to make sure they understand what they did wrong by the way sometimes it may be important for you to actually write it out in all of this by the way one of the interesting and simple ways to handle it is to make sure that you've written it down because that helps to clarify thinking and ladies look me in the eyes and listen to this. Men are more able to respond when something is written on paper. Can I say it again? Men are more able to respond when something is written on paper. If there's something you need to communicate to a man, write it down Hand it to him. You can read it to him, but hand it to him on the paper. How do I know that? How many people go, I told him this over and over again. I keep telling him this and it doesn't stick in his brain. I know. Because he needs to see it written down. I saw a great thing. A guy said, why is it that every time I walk out of the room, as soon as I'm out of the room, my wife says, and then she gets mad at me because I don't know what she said. Okay? So the whole, in all of this process, sometimes, and it's what I've done and I, I recommend it, you sit down and write it out. Okay? So, and if, for example, if you have to get to the place of forgiving somebody, you need to write out what they have done wrong so that it's clear in your mind what has been done wrong. You may not hand the first edition of that note to them. Okay? The first edition, you need to be able to go, (laughs) and then you edit it and give them the next edition. So the one-on-one is the hardest step in this because it puts the responsibility fully on you. And if the person repents, as Jesus said, says, I know I did wrong. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. The process stops dead. It doesn't go any further. Unless, of course, it's the illegal thing. Then it has to go to the police. But are you with me there? So the first step is one-on-one. The second step is that if that person refuses to repent, refuses to say they did something that they did wrong, then you bring in select witnesses with you. But if you will not listen, and listen means will not listen and say, yes, I did wrong, okay? Listen, listen just mean, yeah, okay, I hear you. Listen means, yes, I hear you, and I did wrong. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, there's an interesting factor here. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people who understood that no matter could be brought to a court without actual witnesses. And so the first way they would hear this is that if this person won't listen to you, you have to take two or three people with you who saw the immoral thing done to you. In other words, they're actual witnesses of the event. And so those would be, if you're thinking, all right, who do I select to take with me? If there were others who witnessed the event, then they're the ones to select to take with you because they're the ones who have firsthand knowledge of what happened. The next level, though, if there are others that you need to take with you, how do you select who to take with you? Galatians chapter 6 answers it for us. It says you must take those who are spiritual, those who are mature. Take people with you who are spiritually mature enough to be able to help you resolve this issue. But you'll see next week, even those who are mature have to be careful that they don't get tempted to sin as well. So in other words, you take two or three witnesses with you, in order to, to, to confront the person. Ideally, the people who actually saw the event, next level, you take people with you who are spiritually mature enough to help the two of you resolve this issue and to work it out. And if the person then confesses, the process stops dead. Now, one of the reasons why you take mature people with you, James warns us that there's a terrorist who lives behind your teeth. called the tongue. And one of the problems that that is being preempted here is you take mature people with you who will be able to help you resolve it and who won't then run out the door and tell everybody else what just happened. Oh, I've got some special news. I know something you don't know. I'm going to tell you what just happened. You need mature people who will not let their tongues lead them into trouble. In my case, i found that I can keep secrets. It's the people I tell who keep blabbing it. (laughs) Step one, you go to the person one-on-one, and that takes a lot of courage, I know. But for our own sake, to set ourselves free from bitterness and anger, that is the first step. Then you take two or three witnesses, and if the person confesses, you forgive them. Now, that means... When somebody says, I am sorry, please forgive me, that you have to absorb the wrong and not want to continue to punish the person. And <laughs> is this easy stuff to do? Not at all. You have to be willing to absorb the wrong done to you. Listen to what I found. Jesus took upon his back the lashes that it should have been laid upon our backs. He chose to absorb the punishment for sins he had not committed. He did it in order that we can be forgiven our sins. And Jesus does not hold a grudge against us because of what he suffered at our hands. He forgave even that. When it is all said and done, forgiveness means that I take the injury done to me. And do not hold, the pers- hold it against the person who injured me. To forgive is indeed divine. The Apostle Paul endured persecution and tremendous physical suffering because of his allegiance to Christ Jesus. But at no time do we find him seeking revenge or demanding justice. There were times when, in order to advance the gospel, he invoked his Roman citizenship to cause the authorities to follow legal procedures against him. But in his writings, we do not find Paul whining about the wrongs done to him. He absorbed All of that, just as Jesus did. And in the history of South Africa, Nelson Mandela did the same thing. Sentenced to prison for 27 years. When he was released, Nelson Mandela chose not to punish his jailers. Nelson Mandela chose not to punish the white people of South Africa. Nelson Mandela was an incredible gift to South Africa at that point in time because he saved the country from a bloodbath. He could have upturned that country into an absolute bloodbath in a revolution of unbelievable um, size. But instead, he guided and led the nation forward in order to protect them. He even came up with a thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And what they did was they established a factor where if anybody had abused somebody else during the apartheid years, if they came forward and confessed what they had done, they would be pardoned. Can you imagine that? That they did that on a national scale. If you didn't and you were discovered, you would have to be punished for what had happened. And there's a story from one of the events where a, a policeman was, had to confess what he had done. And what he had done is he had murdered a father and a mother. And then he found their little boy hiding under a bed and dragged the little boy out but chose not to kill him. But from that day on, that little boy never spoke again. At the Truth and and Reconciliation Commission, that policeman confessed and wept in front of all the people and asked that little boy for forgiveness. And the little boy just sat there for a minute. And he got up and he walked over to the policeman and hugged him. Unbelievable. It's just like, oh. So that's what Nelson Mandela did. He said, in order for us to be able to move forward, in order for forgiveness to happen, you have to absorb the wrong that has been done to you. The Spirit said this in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Burning coals means conscience. Rather than seeking to to punish somebody who has done wrong to you once they have confessed, once they have apologized, Once they've repented of it, you let them go and you leave the event, you leave it all in God's hands. God knows how best to punish people, okay? Let me say that again. God knows best how to punish people. Let him do it because anything we do wouldn't come anywhere close. And so we leave it in God's hands. If there's to be punishment or mercy, we leave it in God's hands and going forward. But what if, after you've got your witnesses, the person still will not repent, will still not say that I've done wrong. Then you restore, you try to restore the relationship by taking it to the church leadership. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this is early in the process of the church being established. As time goes on, the responsibility for handling issues like this shifts from the whole congregation to the leaders of the church. And that's why with us as a church, that's how it would happen. That if you had a a case where somebody had had done something wrong and they refused to even listen to the two or three witnesses, then you would come to the elders of the church. Because now they are the ones who would step into the process and we would begin to help with the resolution. What we do in, in our particular case is that we would appoint the right core group of people. Because sometimes if there's a woman involved in some kind of conflict, you want women involved in that process, and so the leadership of the church would put together a team, appropriate team of people, who would then step into the process to help to bring it to a place of resolution, the book of Hebrews, written by, I believe, um, Barnabas, (laughs) but the Spirit of God wrote, it says this, have confidence in your leaders, and submit to the authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Notice that statement, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. (laughs) Anybody in leadership right now, you should have a trickle of sweat running down your spine because we're going to answer to God for how we handle issues like that. But when it's brought to the whole group, then we have to, as leaders of the church, take step into the action. So one-on-one refuses to respond. One-on-one, he does respond. You forgive and it matter's over. One with witnesses, they, 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 they repent, the matter's done, put it away. But if they don't, it goes to the leadership of the church. What if, even in front of the leaders of the church, these people will not respond? Then you ris- try to move them toward restoration by quarantine. And quarantine is an incredibly important word. That if we have to take that next step, the purpose is not punishment. Punishment. The church is never given authority to punish. Our job is to quarantine somebody in order to hopefully bring them back to restoration. Jesus said this, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. (laughs) (laughs) We're about to start spending four cents more per gallon. Is it four cents or 40? How much? Six. Six Six cents a gallon. All right. So here's the interesting thing. You're to treat him as a pagan. What did Jesus say we're to do in relationship to pagans? Evangelize them. Okay? He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And so here's a person who refuses to respond to the church You're to treat him now as an unbeliever. But your goal with an unbeliever is to win them to faith in Jesus Christ. But if he refuses to listen, even at this point, you're to treat him as an unbeliever, so somebody you're trying to win to Christ, and a tax collector. (laughs) Now, we we, (laughs) we don't like tax collectors either, but in those days, the tax collectors were the equivalent of the mafia. What happened in those days, Rome was very clever. They didn't send their own people to to collect the taxes. They would let somebody buy the franchise to collect taxes for them from their own people. And so a Jewish person would buy the franchise to collect the taxes on behalf of Rome. But he wouldn't be paid a salary. He had to collect the taxes and submit them. But he wouldn't be paid a salary. The way he earned a living was he would take more than the taxes that they owned. And so he would tax the people himself in order to be able to generate his own income. It was, it was an entire system set up for abuse. And most of the tax collectors did exactly that. They abused the system and they, they, they robbed people constantly in order to fill their own coffers. As a result, tax collectors were isolated from the community. They couldn't, they were not invited in to community events. They were kept at a distance. So do you notice what's happening here? If a person refuses to respond after all that we've done over and over again, then they're to be removed from the fellowship, quarantined from the fellowship, but also treated as someone to be won back into the fellowship. That's such a hard thing to do. It really is. Now, here's the interesting thing unfortunately i've been part of having to do this a couple of times and the one thing that we've pointed out to the person who we're saying all right all right you're an immoral person we cannot let you back into our church you're going to contaminate our church we're going to set you out because you we don't want you to contaminate our church but make them understand this you're not allowed to attend our church anymore but more than that you're not allowed to go to any church anywhere you see most times people go "Eh, who cares Tell me I can't come to this church. I'll just go to the church down the road. And we make sure that they understand. Uh, 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 uh. Understand this. It's not that you're not allowed to come to our church. You're not allowed to go to church anywhere at all. The point of it is to quarantine them, 1 Thessalonians, so that they will repent and come back to God and come back into the church. Had one man l- deliberately do that. said, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to just go down the church to so-and-so church. So I called the pastor of that church and told him, he's under discipline. Please do not allow him to attend your church. He will contaminate you. He really was. He was a a contaminating person. Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, not even to eat with such a one. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Is that hard a hard passage to deal with yes is that a hard thing to do yes extremely hard on one occasion we had a woman who was in leadership in our church who had an affair and we had to go through all of this with her and ultimately it was such a heartbreaking thing i'd known her when she was a little girl i knew her as a young woman i knew her as a married woman i knew her in this situation and we had to do it we had to do it and boy that hurt about 15 to 20 years later, she wrote me a letter. And she said, Thank you so much for doing that. Because it enabled me ultimately to come back to God. And I'm writing to ask you to forgive me. And it's like, Yes, yes. Wonderful to be able to get to that place and go, Okay, that, thank you, Lord, for that. All right now. So, it's a case where there's definitely been an immoral act by somebody, and that person refuses, 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 and will not respond to, to any kind of, of uh, step into the process. But what if there's a matter that's got, that is not an immoral s- step? It's not a sin. What do we do when there's disputes between people on a level that is not, Clearly a sinful action. Well, there's one passage that speaks to this. Paul writes, and he's writing to Titus, who's becoming the the, uh, pastor of a church. He says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. In other words, he knows that there are going to be times in the life of a church when people are going to get involved in all kinds of things to argue about all kinds of things to be upset about Uh, one of my churches we moved our junior high program into a beautiful room Ah, it was such a beautiful big room and it was an ideal room for them because it gave them lots of space the only problem was the room had mini blinds on all the windows and within a few weeks guess what happened to the mini blinds they started to get bent and they started to get broken And so one of the leaders of the church came to me and he said, do you see what's happening in that room? You need to do something. They are breaking the mini blinds. So the guy in charge of the facilities and I walked in there to figure out, what are we going to do? You build a steel wall around the inside here, put a cage and keep the kids in a cage, put somebody on the outside with a whip. What are we going to do to protect our mini blinds? He and I came to a perfect conclusion. Throw them away. And we did. So we took the mini blinds down and threw them away. Problem solved. Except between me and him. Like, what did you just do? Do you know how much money we spent on all those mini blinds? One of those cases where there's no sin being committed here, okay? It's kind of like just let it go. He tried to bring it to the elder board, and the elders went, get out of here. We're not gonna deal with that. That's just an issue. They made the right choice on a case like that. So there are times in the life of a church where all kinds of things like that will happen and there's going to be difficulties that come up between us. And he says, don't get embroiled in these. Basic, simple way to say this is choose your fights. Choose what you're going to fight about. And make sure that you think it through very carefully. By the way, uh, this quarrels about the law is talking about theological issues. Sometimes somebody will come up with a theological problem that we as a church have to deal with. So there'll be somebody who's teaching something that is not true to the Bible. We have to step in, and we have to deal with it. What if, when you step into such a situation, the person doesn't respond? This gets scary. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. So if you have somebody who on another issue will not respond to what the church does and what the church decides, and they keep stirring trouble in the church, they'd be given one warning, two warnings, and then after that, quarantined. In other words, have nothing to do with them. In order to protect the church, there are many churches that have been hurt deeply because they did not take these kind of steps. And they allowed somebody who is is a, a person who is a divisive person to remain in the church and to do harm and damage to the church. Remember my airplane illustration? This is not aimed at anybody in the church right now. Unless, of course, you feel guilty. Then see me afterwards. No. (laughs) This is not aimed at anybody at all. Our goal is to restore people. Restore someone who has sinned against another one. Restore somebody who sinned against the church. Ultimately, our goal is to restore. And watch this. After writing to the Corinthian church and saying to them, remove that that wicked man from among you, on another occasion he wrote to the Corinthian church, and it's probably somebody else. Somebody had been quarantined from the church, but had repented and had come back to the church. Read what Paul says, and guys, this is critically important because it's this step that many churches never take, and they must take this step. If you've got a leader or somebody who's been put out of the church, who's been quarantined, who's been uh, disciplined, and that person repents, you must take this next step. He says, the punishment inflicted on him, speaking about a man who'd been quarantined by the majority, is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm, reaffirm your love for him. Isn't that a beautiful statement? So once somebody has repented, once somebody has responded, then you take them back in again. Why? To protect him from excessive sorrow. You make sure that now he's brought back into the family and he's completely restored to relationship with God's people. I have a brother, former brother-in-law who was a deputy sheriff in Multnomah County, Oregon. And on one occasion, he went to arrest a man. And as he went to arrest the man, the man pulled out a gun and fired at him several times. But it was a Saturday night special, a cheap gun, and fortunately for Hirsch, every one of those times that guy pulled the trigger, misfired, misfired, misfired. By that time, Hirsch had gotten his own gun out, and he shot the man. And the man was, was hit in the stomach area, and he was paralyzed from the waist on down, and he went to prison as a result of that. Years later... Hirsch was driving along, doing his normal duty as a deputy sheriff, and he noticed a car weaving down the road in front of him. And so he pulled the guy over. And to his shock, it was the same man. And the guy was weaving because paralyzed from the waist down, he was driving a car with a walking stick. So he, was, he would use, it on, he'd use his cane on the, on the gas and then on the brakes and then gas and the brakes, and so it was weaving. So for the second time in his life, Hirsch arrested the same man. And the man went to prison because he had violated his his uh, parole. But then Hirsch thought about it. And so Hirsch went and visited that man in jail. And he kept visiting him in jail. And along the line, that man accepted Christ as his savior. And then Hirsch discipled him and went back over and over and discipled him. And he was eventually released from prison. And the two of them attended the same church. Now, is that a beautiful picture of what God wants us to do? That man tried to kill him. That man did everything he could to kill Hirsch. Hirsch was able to overcome that. Hirsch paralyzed this man. That man was able to overcome that as well and for them to be restored. So whatever we do when it comes to conflict between us, the ultimate goal is restoration to restore the relationship. In the process, we may have to do some quarantining to protect the church, but ultimately to restore. So I'm gonna ask the worship team to come. We've got a song about the grace of God to reflect on. I'll ask the worship team to come up and join me.